ladies and gentlemen all over the world, you are tuned in to the one and the only A Difference in Thought. Uh, I'm your host, Charlie Ray, and here at A Difference in Thought, A Difference in Thought engages and processes recent events, culture, philosophy, public policy, and faith through the ancient art of truth telling. Join the conversation and gain an alternative perspective with A Difference in Thought. This podcast is an honor and homage to the work and mission of the great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. right above me. And the mantra and mission of the show is that basic arithmetic teaches us that there can be no difference without subtraction before first uh, stating where you would like to see a difference, first consider where you're willing to take a subtraction. Uh, Welcome, everybody, back from your uh, holiday, I hope that, uh, or holidays, that was uh, very meaningful to you all. Uh, I've been gone for uh, a little bit, but uh, no, this is probably how the show is going to flow as I get something uh, that I think is uh, interesting or something that you all should have to do and then how I want to piece it together. That's how I'm going to come to you all, but it's exciting and great to be here. Um, so today you are tuned into season two, episode number two of a difference in thought called No Room in the End, The Christ Child and the Habits of Empire. Now, um, some of y'all might be saying, uh, hey brother, you sound like you a little bit late. Uh, Christmas is gone and passed, all the days of Advent, all the, all the Christmas carols have been sung. Um, maybe your dad is, or has finally retired playing Johnny Mathis Christmas carols or whatever album that they play on repeat as dad's duties are to do. <laughs> Uh, trees might be down, but here's the reason why I chose a little bit of a delay in actually talking about uh, the Christ child, the nativity, the Christmas scene is because I think sometimes we view it a lot through the lens of commercialism and just kind of how we've been socially conditioned about this is the time where we do this and so it's kind of just out of tradition and not really engaging our hearts and minds and actually considering what type of environment um, uh, uh, and context uh, what we can draw parallels from. So one thing that's going to be really unique this season and one thing that I'm trying to really push is the theme that um, just because something is current doesn't mean something is new. And so, um, when we're talking about, and we talked about this a little bit in the last episode, Distorted Nostalgia, where we were talking about the patterns of terror that have happened historically throughout America, and how though these uh, events such as the tragic shooting at Tree Life Synagogue are current, um, when you think about the history and patterns of violence that we talked about and lynching and things like that, they certainly are not new. And so one thing that a lot of times people talk about, especially when you're talking about the areas of justice, is that people term a theme that they call empire, right? And so some of y'all might be like, dun, 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 like the Empire Strikes Back for all my Star Wars. <laughs> and so a funny story about that, actually. I actually played the score, the Darth Vader theme, when Trump was getting inaugurated or whatever. In one ear I had the inauguration, and in the other ear I had like um, that score for like the Darth Vader theme. And it's, it was a great um, kind of precursor to prepare what the Trump administration has been, in my opinion. Um, but anyways, we're talking about empire. So empire or imperialism, right, uh, is, is pretty much a government um, 
uh, dominance or or uh, high resources and violence and, and, and the ability to uh, kind of keep people out of of power for the profiting of a system that might be government it might just be uh, corporate it might be concentrated wealth and so uh, it's it's examining um, this power building what does it mean for the vulnerable and the people that we are really called to um, serve and so uh, one it's an interesting book that I've been reading it's a book called uh, the first Christmas uh, and this is uh, from a scholar who kind of finds value in examining uh, the first Christmas uh, through the lens of what he likes to call reading the Bible as a metaphor, right? Now, saints, don't get mad. I'm not saying that it's no truth or any type of historical account of that. But he's saying when you understand the context of this, you can understand that the Christmas story is really about uh, a vulnerable, uh, oppressed people and how they respond and resist to the empire of their time. So the empire of their time would be uh, the Roman Empire um, under um, Augustus Caesar. His real name was Octavian, later became uh, Augustus Caesar, and, and, and specifically through King Herod. And we'll get into that a little bit later as we're talking about examining habits of empire. But he gives a, a, a very interesting look into things. So even when he talks about the Luke account and uh, the names that are given to Jesus, such as being the Prince of Peace or being the Light of the World or 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 the Anointed One, like the Christ, is really parallel to how um, the, the the religion of Rome uh, deified their leaders, right? So so Caesar, and especially Caesar, since he was uh, I think it's called Pontifex Maximus. It's really that Caesar kind of held a role as king and priest, right? And so here we have this 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 this. So it's this story is kind of being painted uh, over the landscape of who the empire says is. Um, the progenitor of peace, who the empire says is the light, who the empire says is God, who the empire says uh, is is treasured, should be valued, and should be worshipped. And so Luke, in a resistance to that narrative, says that no, it's not. It's in, in God's kingdom, right, that Jesus speaks about. And Luke is very specific in his narrative actually focuses a lot on a lot of people that are um, excluded um, uh, from sometimes other ones or, or other uh, gospel accounts or or maybe he focuses on women more. He focuses instead of Matthew talks about the Magi and the wise men who we'll talk about later. He talks about shepherds, people who were a lower uh, class and saying that God's kingdom, right, come um, is not about who the empire says we should worship and pay attention to, but it's about the vulnerable. It's about uh, uh, the people who are oppressed, the people who are under. And so Luke, by ascribing these names to Jesus, he is resisting the empire that would say Caesar is to be worshipped and saying that Jesus is to be worshipped, that Jesus is the light, the 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 uh, heir of David, uh, the 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 offspring of David, um, meaning Jesus, but perhaps also meaning uh, the people of Israel, right? Uh, and so it's just interesting to see. Um, um, and I read the first Christmas comes as added meaning to um, what what I believe is is a, is a is a true Christmas uh, narrative. Um, 
And so here you see, and we're talking about habits of empire. You see this really weird. So we don't understand with Jesus, and you understand this in Hebrews as well, that um, Jesus is king and priest and peter also talks about us being a royal priesthood meaning if we suffer with christ we can we can reign with him as well and so having this this joint position of royal priesthood this is something that caesar augustus um uh enjoyed as pontifex maximus as as a uh, which was a religious position um uh under rome and i think that's actually kind of what the Pope was eventually called as well. They were typically separate offices, but Caesar joined them and kind of saying, as the empire is the religion. The empire is what you <laughs> is what you believe in, right? Uh, and so Luke kind of counters that by calling Jesus um, the, the 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 coming king, right? Um, uh, and so it's it's an interesting list. So even when you even this 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 tension that you have between Rome and 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 Israel, Jesus is birthed very much in the very um, uh, thing of this. And so Luke's 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 uh, warning to us is to, in the midst of what the prosperous or 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 those who have the most profit in society say to deem, he warns us not to miss the Christ the Christ child, not to say that there is you know. Um, no room in the end, right? Because, and, and so one reason we call this about the no room in the end is that I think when outside of the Santas and Rudolphs and all these other things within Christmas, right? It's a very close call. To, it's, a, it's a call for us to examine who is vulnerable in our society, who when it comes time to their investment, to their protection, uh, to preserving their life, do we run out of resources do you run out of care for do you run out of empathy for right when you think about the tragic things that are happening uh at the border with the two now two children dying in in in, in custody and what seems to be preventable deaths um uh if more care was given to them uh uh what does the christmas narrative call us to respond to and how uh their vulnerable lives could have been saved if people showed more care or more investment uh, into their lives, and so this is so when we're so when we're talking about no room in the end, the Christ child and have his empire, we're going to be talking about who was vulnerable in Jesus's time, who was empire in Jesus's time, and how these uh, gospel accounts uh, call us to respond once we kind of understand more of uh, the context of this, right? So, um, uh, so if you go to Matthew chapter two. Uh, and so, for those who are unfamiliar with the show, the show is uh, dedicated to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was a reverend, he was uh, an astute student, a doctor, an activist, he was many things. Um, and so, some episodes are kind of a uh, Dr. King episode, a Reverend King episode. There's going to be a, a mix of, of, of all of that. So. Uh, if I'm talking about Bible verses, or I'm talking about policies, and we're going to get in a little bit, a little bit specific policy on how Richmond is in a no room in the end moment, and how we are very much um, in a theological moment about who we're going to invest in with some uh, upcoming uh, policies and, and suggestions that are before the city council, and we'll talk about that later as well. Um, and so Matthew two. Um, so it's talks about the, the, the wise men 
they come to worship Jesus. Now the wise men uh, come to Herod from the east. Some of them are referred to as uh, the Magi, and they are kind and they are you know uh, wealthy and they come bearing gifts. And they say that they come to worship the King of the Jews. Now Herod <laughs> is not too happy about that because uh, Herod is called King of the Jews. Now to give some context. Now if you're just reading this like without any context and not any understanding and not really understanding of a lot of the uh, political um, uh, context that goes behind this, the king of the Jews. Like, so, so for example, how did Herod even become king of the Jews, right? And, and, and what does it mean for Luke to be writing in a time under Roman oppression uh, where someone who was called king, he introduces people who he deems wise, who calls Jesus King, a vulnerable Christ child King, instead of who is lifted up as King during the current time, right? And so in order to understand uh, that, we need to understand the specific title of King of the Jews, right? And that had special merit in the Roman Empire. If you also remember when Jesus is killed, he is mocked by being called King of the Jews. We have to understand during that time, this was under a different Caesar. So this is this is this is no longer that is no longer to fast forward into the future in the Jesus narrative. That is no longer Augustus Caesar. That is Tiberius Caesar, and Caesar had different uh, rules to for who would govern Judea. So, for example, uh, uh, Herod's son Archelaus, who comes after him, um, he's only king for maybe couple of years, five or six years, then after that, because Judea is, has, has been such a place of resistance against the Roman Empire, they no longer trust, uh, they no longer trust um, Judea to have their own king, so they then have a governor, right? And that's Pontius Pilate then becomes governor of Judea. Uh, but there's still a Herod in, in, in Galilee. That's why when Jesus dies, Pontius Pilate sends him to Herod, right? Uh, Antipas, right? Who was still over Galilee. But why is Pilate over Judea, right? What happens? Why does Judea no longer get king? So that's a very political resistance uh, conversation that we will have. But first, let's talk about Herod, right? So Herod... Um, is I think he's a good example of what uh, Howard Thurman talks about in Jesus and the Disinherited on how people who are suffering and people who are under oppression actually um, the different ways they can respond. What does resistance look like? What does non-resistance look like? And he talks about non-resistance can actually look uh, different ways. He's talking about non-resistance to whatever the empire says. Uh, and so he says in his book Jesus and the Disinherited um, uh, and he, he kind of talks about the story of where he was he was um, he was in he was a seminary student and he had a, uh, a Korean American student come in and this is this is during um, this is during the world wars and this is when um, uh, uh, Korea still was um, uh, under oppression by Japan, and so um, he he uh, so he remembers this moment where this Korean um, 
American student is, is asked about what his experience is like in America and you know and he says I know that y'all want me to come and talk about America but the truth is uh, for the Korean people the main thing on our minds is how are we to be free from Japan right and so he kind of talks about how when people are under oppression uh, certain conversations that seem trivial or main to other people may not be oppressed uh, it, the, that the oppression and, and, and what to do with the presence of an oppressor becomes a central um, conversation and preoccupation of the mind of people that are oppressed and that there are two responses you can have. You can have, you can have a, a response of resistance or a response of um, non-resistance. And so I want to read through what um, uh, Howard Thurman says about this and so this is uh, from Jesus and the disinherited he says in the main there were two alternatives faced by the Jewish minority of which Jesus was a part and he's talking about now so instead of talking about Japan and Korea he's talking about Rome and um, uh, uh, Israel so he's in the main there were two alternatives found by the Jewish minority of which Jesus was a part simply stated these were to resist or not to resist. So here we have the two different options. He says, but each of these alternatives has within it secondary alternatives. So he's saying there are diff within the options to resist or not to resist. There are different ways. Like how can you, there are different ways to resist. There are also different ways to uh, non-resist. Uh, I talk about this a little bit in my conversation with my friend um, Corey when he was talking about does he think that, um, does he think that Dr. King's path would, of non-resistance would, um, as he deemed on resistance would have worked before a generation today. So he talks about each of these alternatives has within it secondary alternatives. Under the general plan of non-resistance, one may take the position of imitation, right? Uh, the aim of such an attitude is to assimilate uh, into the culture and the social behavior pattern of the dominant group, right? And so we talked about this in the second baptism in season one. If you haven't heard it, uh, go ahead and go to SoundCloud, um, iTunes, Google Play Music, search a difference in thought, uh, and go ahead and listen to that episode. Um, and so he says, the aim of such an attitude of imitation is to assimilate into the culture and the social behavior pattern of the dominant group. It is the profound capitulation to the powerful because it means the yielding of oneself to that which deep within one recognizes is being unworthy. So pretty much it's like, I don't really believe they're better than me, but because of how the societal um, power and resources are set up in order to survive, I just kind of succumb to this, right? Uh, it makes for a strategic loss of self-respect. So uh, that he's so now he's talking about what is the purpose of um, uh, only giving resources to people that submit. And this is what W.E.B. Du Bois talks about, right? When he talks about uh, America's uh, or, or, or whiteness's plan for those who choose to assimilate versus those who choose to resist. If you assimilate, then you can get some of some of the resources, right? If you don't, then you're kind of left out of it because the strategic, the strategy behind this is that is to have the oppressed person lose respect for themselves, lose belief in themselves, and to think that they can come out of this. So as he says, the aim is, is to reduce all outer or external signs of difference to zero. So pretty much say to get these resources, I've got to behave in a way that, that makes the oppressor feel like my goals are his, his goals are my goals. Um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, look, I'm just here to, 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 to get by and to whatever. He says, so that there shall be no ostensible course 
for active violence or opposition. So he's saying, look, look, I'm not here to oppress you. I'm not, look, I'm not here to resist or whatever. Like, I'm just trying to survive. So it's pretty much surrender. Just all out surrender. Surrender and then even posturing yourself in, in a way um, where you kind of disregard what your original society said that you are, right? So he says, uh, this was also true of the Sadducees, talking about uh, the biblical context, upper class. They did not represent the masses of the people. Any disturbance of the established order meant upsetting their position. So now he's talking about um, the motivations behind why people may choose to not resist, right? They loved Israel, but they seem to have loved security more. They made their public peace with Rome and went on about the business of living. They were astute enough to see their own position could be perpetuated if they stood firmly against all revolutionaries and radicals. So, let me tell you about this. So now he's transitioning to not just say uh, non-resistance. So it's almost like there's a passive non-resistance where it's like, hey, whatever happens, happens. But then he talks about an active non-resistance, which seems a little confusing, right? An active non-resistance is, man, now that I have assimilated and I've gotten some of these resources, I now am going to actively um, uh, suppress anyone who is now trying to resist against the government that has given me these resources or given me this spot or given me this status quo, right? And so now he's saying, <clears throat> There's another brand of non-resistance where people assimilate, get a little bit of power, uh, and just pretty much do whatever they have to take to keep this little bit of power in an ultimately oppressive uh, 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 standpoint, right? And so their tragedy, so this is what he says, they were astute enough to see their own position could be perpetuated if they stood firmly against our revolutionaries and radicals. Their tragedy was in the fact that they idealized the position of the Roman in the world and suffered the moral fate of the Romans by becoming like them. So he says the problem with this is that you idealize the empire so much, um, you actually end up idealizing the people that actually actively oppress you, right? Uh, or historically they've oppressed you because you, you then get into this personal versus systemic versus Rome has been good to me, but overall it's been bad to your people, right? Uh, and so there's this distancing of yourself from from your from your from your group and your identity because you want to be aligned with power, um, uh, and um, and you pretty much want to keep the, the the status quo, right? But the tragedy of that. So he talks about the 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 idealization of that, but then he also talks about a moral spiritual fate that happens, and they suffered the moral fate of the Romans by becoming like them. And so now it talks about becoming like your oppressor. And so uh, Dr. King often talked about, uh, and it's kind of the biblical thing, that do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, and saying that the, one of the, the things about hatred is that hatred can make you become the oppressor you first started off resisting. But here he's talking about participation and surrender can also make you like the empire that you once uh, hated. So he's saying that success can alter you into the image of the empire and um, hatred can as well. Um, uh, the opposition to those who work for social change does not come only from those who are the guarantors of the status quo, 
So he's saying, have to be smart when you're resisting things. You're, when, you, when you're resisting an oppressive system, your enemy is not just going to be the system, right? He's, but here's what he says. Again and again, it has been demonstrated that the lines are held by those whose hold on security is sure only as long as the status quo remains intact. So he's saying, man, if you're, if you're resisting an oppressive structure, you got two enemies, really, or two people who will resist you. You have people, one, the person who set the system in place, and then two, the people that benefit from the system uh, that oppresses you, right? So the people that are reaping the benefits and you have the person that's that's whatever, right? And so that's that's like the story of um uh if you think of the story of uh Uncle Tom's cabin, right? Where you have the there's the person who's there's a super cruel person, right? Simon Legree, who's breaking the slaves and he's he's the enemy of of a slave. But then there's the person the the I think are their names like Sambo and Quimbo who like then get a little bit higher than the other slaves and then they want to repress and beat the other slaves and different things like that as well. So I'm not I'm not uh, lifting up Uncle Tom as some type of a uh, uh, <laughs> uh, revolutionary or anything either. I'm just I'm just talking about the the, the different power structures that are in play there because that's the first example that came to my mind, right? <laughs> um, and so he says all imperialism or all empire functions in this way. Uh, it's sub subject peoples are held under control by this device. And then he says one of the great examples of this is Herod, bringing it all back to Jesus' day. Now, why did I go through all that <laughs> to talk about Herod? Because historically, uh, we need to understand, right, how Herod got the name King of the Jews. Uh, and why Luke in his in his uh why Matthew in his uh, rendition of this story is talking about wise men that come to king of the Jews and say that we come to worship the true king but it ain't you <laughs> so that as a as as a part of uh, resistance and so you even see uh, worship and idealization as form of worship right uh, 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 and so meaning that if you if you admire those things that the empire does not admire, right? If you choose to admire those and uplift those who the empire says not, that within itself is a form of resistance. That's how our Thurman talks about. And so this is, I think, what Thurgood Marshall also would talk about when he talks about do not be sedated by success, meaning that do not, now that this oppressive system has has so chosen to not be as oppressive in this area, don't let that make you think that the oppressive system uh, is now suddenly fully cooperating with you, right? Continue to resist as you gain things, but do not um, uh, become this, this uh, gatekeeper of security and the status quo that you're not able to challenge uh, um, this oppressive system as it rears its ugly head because in the past it has somehow given you uh, something nice. Uh, I, I talk about this in, in, in this discussion that I have with my friend Corey Goss. This is like an extra, just a side conversation that, that I'll have up on the channel as well. And we talk about how, you know, he, he always talks about people say uh, people aren't being nice to Donald Trump because they won't talk about the nice things that he does. And so it's like, yeah, I can talk about 
cool. I'm glad that you signed the prison, the first that prison reform bill, even though, you know, in 2021, you might need it yourself because you got some nonviolent offenses. You might, <laughs> some of your people in your circle might be going to prison for. But anyway, um, yes, I can say, I can say I'm glad this is happening, but that doesn't mean that uh, one good product that's coming out of a factory of oppression has to make me ignore the fact that an oppressive system is still going on with some of the um, rules of repealing how to, you know, uh, how to find segregation with the HUD rule. Uh, some of the things that Jeff Sessions uh, rolled back in consent decrees and different things like this and, 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 and uh, Betsy DeVos and all these other types of things that are happening. So it's just a kind of a different way of saying staying, stay, uh, stay focused and don't be sedated by success. So, when we talk about Herod the Great, now Herod the Great, and we're going to do some history here, um, from 74 to 4 BC. So, just so you don't get confused uh, uh, before, um, some say before Christ, some say before the Common Era, um, <clears throat> history counted backwards. So, after 74 came 73, 73 saying 72, when talking about BC. Because it's going to be kind of confusing. I'm going to give you guys a timeline, right? So, things to understand about Herod. Herod um, was born in 74 BC. Um, his father was um, uh, an Edomian. Um, that's also um, in the Bible. That's also referred to as Edom, which is the land where Esau, the brother of Jacob, the brother of Israel, came. So is, after that story of you know Jacob wrestling with God and Esau and and uh, Jacob hugging it out, bro. Uh, as it continued throughout history, their people did not always uh, get along. And so actually, Israel in uh, um, in the earlier century of BC, actually had about 90 years of independence. Well, so they started with securing their borders, but then they started to expand their borders. And one of the countries that they conquered, um, actually, uh, well, one was Samaria, and the other one was um, Edom, right? Uh, and so as they expanded into um, uh, Edom, they also forced the Jewish. Uh, religion onto um or, or their their rendition of it onto um uh e edom there it, through through military force kind of right and so this is this is the so herod actually came out of um uh an oppressed people group um as well uh and so it came um uh and so um under um John Hyrcanus, uh, the third, I believe, he strikes a deal with Pompey, who was then uh, 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 a ruler in Rome, uh, and pretty much said that, you know, no Jewish kings would be allowed in Rome, but only religious power as high priest. So, and so they, Rome comes in and helps, helps them overcome some enemies of theirs and says that here's the deal. Um, you will have to kind of uh, Rome, you will kind of be a colony of Rome, and the, but you can still have religious power as a high priest, but it ain't going to be any kings, right? Um, and so um, uh, Herod's uh, father then um, uh, is appointed as uh, kind of like a governor of, of uh, Galilee, right? Um, and so understand this is now uh, and so then within Rome there's a civil war between Caesar 
uh, Julius Caesar in Pompeii. Um, and um, Caesar's kind of gaining a lot of power, and so Pompeii in the Roman world, right? So we think about the, what's going on in the Roman world and then how that affects the different tribes that they're under. Um, Pompeii is pretty much like, um, hey, Caesar, you're getting a real powerful. Why don't you come and talk without an army and come, and then you have to kind of give up the land that you kind of conquered on your conquest. Caesar is like, nah, I'm not about that life. He rolls up with 6,000 people. On site, Pompeii is like, I'm not trying to catch these hands. And so then there's like kind of this uh, uh, change of power that happens. Um, but ultimately, Julius Caesar is um, assassinated. Uh, and um, then a year later, then Herod's father is assassinated. Uh, it's not exactly clear why, but it probably has to do with the change of power that's happening in Rome. And then Herod succeeds him um, um, and is affirmed by Rome to do so. So it's Rome now in the Civil War is kind of, you know, they're still trying to figure out what happened um, after Caesar kind of won the first Civil War and things are kind of, you know, loose. And so Herod's is kind of there and he's like, yo, kind of just slide in. My pops is dead. Kind of keep this power. And Rome's kind of like, uh, all right, cool. You can do it. Um, um, and so uh, Herod is just kind of there chilling in this new power that he has. Um, uh, and so Herod, so then there's another civil war that breaks out, this time between Octavian and Mark Antony. Um, and uh, so then he switches sides. Uh, <laughs> um, he, switches, he switches sides to pretty much like whoever won. Whoever wins. Uh, so, um, Octavia, Octavian um, confirms Herod is governor because he's like, okay, you rock, you're rocking with me, then I'm going to go ahead and make you governor. Here's the thing. Herod then, so now Herod is finally legitimized, at least until we see what happens at the end of this war. So, Herod is sitting in this place of power. So, again, we're talking about the status quo. You see that his priority here is that Herod isn't really a resistor, as Howard Thurman talks about. He is an, he is an active non-resistor, meaning that I'm going to do what it takes to retain this status quo that I have. doesn't matter who I have to go through. So Herod uh, then has an uprising on his hands by a name by An 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 Antigonus, who is a has, uh, Hasmonean prince. Um, and he's a, he's a Jewish antagonist, is a resistor. Right, he's like, nah, I ain't down with Roman rule. I don't care what type of bells and whistles you give me. I want my people to be free. And if Herod's about that life, then Herod can catch these hands. Then, right? So, but Antigonus is like, but he has Rome, who's kind of big. So, and, and Antigonus goes to to Parthia to kind of get his own army and saying that, yo, bump these bells and whistles. I'm not impressed that Rome gave us a a king light, right, or whatever. Like, I think that we should rule. So he comes and gets an army. Antigonus drives out, um, drives out Herod, right? Now, here's a weird thing. Now, Herod, you know, you think that maybe he would say, like, man, well, you know, they drove out Rome. I might not be a king, but at least I can, I can live and my whole people can be free, right? So he comes through um, and drives out. Um, so Antigonus drives out Herod. Um, Herod then asks Rome, instead of saying like, well, you know what, 
it's bad for me. I lost power, but it's good for my people. I have lost the uh, status quo that I had under this, but at least my people are free, right? No. Herod goes to Rome and asks Rome to regain control and says like, yo, can you help me kick out these people that kicked me out because I was working for y'all? You know, yeah, you know, kind of sort of my people, but they kicked me out. Can you help me go take this back uh, in the name of Rome? And so Rome comes through, helps him kick out um, antagonists. Um, and um, so Mark Anthony helps Herod uh, retake Jerusalem. And it's at this point that the Roman Senate appoints Herod as the title king of the Jews, right? So at this point, he's appointed not by God, right, as king of the Jews, as normally flows through the uh, uh, line of David, as, as Matthew was kind of pointing out, as Luke is both pointing out that that Jesus and that Joseph and Mary of the line of David, as in that this is the way that God has chosen kings through the vulnerable, in the same way that in the story of when David is first elected king, how his dad, Jesse, has all these powerful men that the world would say is 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 a great leader, but God always chooses the vulnerable to lead. So here, this is how Herod becomes king of the Jews. And then throughout this 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 point, um, Herod then begins assassinating people that that uh, kind of challenge his throne. Um, um, he fights revolts. Um, uh, uh, against people that try to take his throne. Um, uh, when uh, Octavian, who's on the other side of Mark Anthony, uh, who, uh, you know, in Rome, like, when, when Mark Anthony uh, loses, uh, then Herod switches sides to Octavian. So again, you see his, his whole thing is, I want the status quo. I want power. I'll do and I'll become um, anything I need to become uh, to get this power, right? Um, he even... Uh, this dude even executes his wife, right? Um, uh, uh, um, he rebuilds uh, Samaria, but de dedicates it to uh, a, 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 he dedicates it to Augustus Caesar. Um, uh, he builds a palace for himself, puts his name on it. So you see that this guy is really about power, and even in times when he could have had freedom for the vulnerable, he he resists it because he wants. His status quo and he also wants to actively attack those um, who are um, who's doing this and so as as Herod keeps going he's building more things for Caesar kind of as a as a token of hey I'm not I'm not resisting you just let me keep my power um, he builds the New Jerusalem temple uh, it actually extended a wing of, of, of the temple. Eventually, in 7 BC, he has his two sons executed, right? Um, uh, Herod then um, uh, proceeds against the, 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 the Pharisees. Um, he has, um, he has uh, another person executed for treason. So, so, so all, all, all in a summary, right? Um, uh, Herod... Uh, this is what Herod is known for, right? Herod, it's very hard to, to disconnect Herod from the Roman Empire because his very title was given by the Roman Empire when he overthrew uh, people who became an independent state or whatever. So when a lot of times people say Jesus never says or the Bible never says anything against 
the Roman Empire, you have to understand the context of this. And so this is this is the type of person. This is the type of 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 uh, Herod is not the Roman Empire, though he's connected connected to it. He is an agent of it in order to just sustain his own um, power. And so when you see the story of of when you see the story of Jesus entering this, this is the type of person. So when the Magi come to Herod, who's who's killed his wife, killed his two sons, uh, betrayed people, switched sides, whatever. Herod's religion is winning, <laughs> right? Like uh, he was he he's not really a, a deep dedicated person of faith uh, to this faith that he's supposed to, to kind of represent or whatever. Uh, his religion is winning. And so when the Magi come in the Matthew account and say, we've come to worship King of the Jews, but it ain't you. Now, all of a sudden, he sees the vulnerable as a threat, right? So two threats, right? One, it, it's, 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 it's a threat. Um, it's a threat against his throne, but he's also hit a threat to his relationship with, with Rome because Anyone who's king of the Jews has to be approved by Rome. And so if there's a, a Roman, if there's a new king of the Jews that's not approved by Rome, then that's going to then mess up his status quo and his profit. And that's exactly what Howard Thurman, uh, what Howard Thurman uh, was, was, was talking about. And so one of the things that seems to be the habit of power uh, is not just as we talked about uh, earlier about like a, a, a religion becoming the empire but also uh, it makes uh, security king for for and status quo uh, king right it makes winning becomes the religion right who's ever winning whoever can get this passed whoever can get the the whoever can get the uh, Supreme Court seats that I want whoever can get this law passed that I want whoever can get this tax cut that I want uh, it becomes my religion to support them because that secures the status quo that I want. Um, uh, instead of instead of being a person of morals and a person who 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 resists and says this is what my faith would inform me to do or what my morals would inform me to do or what would be best for my people or this is what core to my identity. Uh, now forget all that, brother. It's about winning. Uh, and so that's one of the habits of the empire that affected the Christ child is because the, the Jesus's life became much more uh, um, uh, harder and difficult by someone who sat in a position of 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 claiming to be the you know kind of like uh, divinely appointed or whatever right but really his religion was winning. Uh, and what happens to a society, what happens to the vulnerable in society when the leaders only have a religion of winning, only have a religion of legacy? And so Herod here, he's he's building, you know, temples in his own name or, or letting, you know, Caesar desecrate temples, even even to the point of uh, there were some people who were kind of more steadfast to the faith. And they knew that having a Roman eagle over the temple of, of God is something that's terrible. So these two people climb up and they take down and they take down the um they take down the the, the eagle off the off the temple. It's kind of like uh, I think the sister's name was Bree Newsom who in South Carolina. She climbs up and takes down the Confederate flag after the uh, 
uh, after the uh, Dylan Roof kills kills uh, those church members because she's saying that this is something that that shouldn't be represented, right? In light of what we claim to stand for, this isn't something that should be represented. So in that same spirit, these people climb up, take the thing. Herod has them arrested, and he says, "I, I want you to hold them in prison until I die because, and when I die." I want you to execute them on that same day because I want the people to be sad when I'm dead. So again, he's so enclosed in himself that he is missing the vulnerable, maybe even missing what God is, what what God is trying to do in His time because His religion is winning. And so it's been sad to see recently with, uh, uh, with even. The president being willing to shut down the entire country because he wants to keep the vulnerable out, right? Uh, with this wall, right? Uh, and he may he may phrase it as something else, but be, but because of the status quo of America, and this is something that uh, John Fiat talks about in his book. It's called "Believe Me: The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump," uh, and he talks about how. Uh, fear, power, and nostalgia among uh, white evangelical Christians and wanting to be like Herod and wanting to retain the status quo where their faith and their way of thinking is is embedded into uh, laws and Supreme Court seats and all those other types of things that they they make the mistake. um, They share the same moral fate as Howard Thurman says of becoming like the uh, oppressor that you're actually called to resist against. And so the reason why I'm talking about these different things and as we're flowing through history in the present and the Christ child accident is because it's this theme that I'm talking about. Just because something is current doesn't mean something is new. But as you study the as you study what's going on currently and connect it to the past, we can make these links and we can we can become aware to some of the shortcomings of the past uh, that traditionally uh, hasn't happened. And so the the story of the Magi um, versus the story of Herod, right? Uh, the Magi, they say, I am going to worship the real king of the Jews. I'm not going to worship whoever the empire has set up for me to worship. I, I am going to worship the Magi, even if it if it means a change in status quo, even if it means that the next time that, that I suddenly don't have free access to the king's palace, even if it means my own personal safety and security, because the Magi say that after revealing the dream that Herod is really trying to kill this child, they, they unlike uh, Herod, uh, uh, decide that I'm willing to go against the empire uh, my faith in whom I, who I worship uh, is willing to go against the empire to protect the vulnerable, to protect the Christ child. And so uh, the Magi or wise men represent uh, how Jesus can be prospered, right? And the vulnerable can be protected when those who claim to seek him uh, discern and resist the empire's lies. And so this is what Howard Thurman talks about uh, the different levels of resistance. There's a resistance where you can go to to violence, right? It's on the other side of the spectrum, but you can also talk about a moral resistance, right? Or as, or as William Byron talks about, a moral revival, right? That resists uh, uh, and says, "I and says I'm going to resist 
from a moral standpoint, I'm going to resist in, in, in who I invest in and who I support. And as I talk about here, um, we all have streams in this whirlpool of history. And the question is, are we contributing our stream into oppressive systems or are we contributing our stream into a revolution of justice? And the magi in this moment say, once they discern and are made aware of, right? So, they, so they've gone, they have, uh, by divine revelation, they're able to discern that what the empire calls good is actually unjust. One, they do that work of discerning and not just taking the empire's uh, words as truth, right? Uh, and you can, you can see things like the, a documentary called The Propaganda Game that talks about how um, uh, uh, North Korea has their own way of brainwashing the people to think that whatever the empire says is true. So, or, or as our president says, fake news, right? So I'm able to discern what the empire calls fake, discern through what the empire calls good, or great again, right? And I'm able, right, grounded in my faith to say, I'm going to contribute my streams into uh, what uh, God is actually doing. And I'm not just going to assume that whatever the empire does is God ordained because it means winning for me in my life, right? Uh, and so one of the other uh, things within this narrative right here is um, talking about uh, no room in the inn, right? Uh, and so it's interesting that, that another thing that Luke does talks about um, uh, uh, and those in the Christmas narrative that talk about no room in the inn is that they talk about that because they're saying Jesus and Mary are the line of Joseph. They're saying these vulnerable people are actually royalty, right? Uh, uh, they may not be have the power and the resources as all these other people that the empire is calling king and royal, but these vulnerable, pe vulnerable people are actually royal. And because of their royalty, right, uh, we should make room for them, right? Uh, for uh, it says no room in the room for, is no room in the end for who God deems royalty, uh, sending who God deems royalty to dilapidated facilities and 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 with 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 under resourced things, right? That is a habit of empire, right? So we talk about a habit of empire is is one making religion and 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 politics the same, right? Right then, then we then we have the habit of empire of making winning the highest uh, and reserving the status quo um, um, is a way that oppressed people can participate in it. But also uh, uh, a habit of empire that we want to to learn from this is 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 is, is taking who God calls royalty and and sending them to dilapidated facilities. Right. Uh, and so now I'm, now I'm not, trying, not trying to stretch the text and say that these innkeepers were members of the Roman state, but I'm just, I'm just saying let's let's meditate uh, more so on the process and the experience of of Jesus as he enters into this space um, that is kind of over over overseen by empire and saying how many times in our society, right, do we take the vulnerable? Do we take uh, children and do we put them into schools with the dilapidated facilities and, 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 and housing that is 
that is not that is that is um, beneath their dignity and and how many times do we share this habit uh, and one thing that I wanted to uh, talk about and bringing this into recent times is talking about the decision that Richmond has to make concerning this now I was uh, I heard that the mayor was uh, kind of launching his own protest against I guess himself for March for more or actually against the state uh, and saying that the state needs to give more funding uh, but there are some who say that there is some that the, the mayor can do here and so I do want to um, uh, uh, thank the mayor on now uh, proposing 800 million dollars over I believe it's 20 years to Richmond Public Schools and also thanks to the to the, the the person who got the uh, on the ballot initiative on, on when we were voting that that um, that says that we want the the city wanted the mayor to to make a plan on how he was going to endorse schools or to say he can't be done by the December thirty first deadline. So here uh, I actually hit the streets. I was there at the March for More uh, campaign, and I also was able to talk to some of the counter protesters who were talking about this uh, Coliseum project that some is 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 are saying uh, if not handled correctly can kind of continue in the process of saying to those who ask for more things for more funding for schools for more opportunities for more listening to the community that these um projects historically impact or typically told no room in the end or no room in the negotiations or no room in the discussion that this can be a continuation of this and so from what I understand both of these are going to be discussions that have to come up in January and so uh, and when we come back we're going to talk a little bit more about investment as resistance but this is going to be a segment of a difference in resistance uh, investment as resistance this is Charlie Ray with A Difference in Thought. Check out A Difference in Resistance. Resistance was in order. And here we saw a marching band from Armstrong High School marching in step demanding an equally funded education just like the legacy and movement of children who had gone before them if we're willing to look beyond people in power and the narrative that often surrounds them you'll find that today was something of the past more on her later the march started off from Martin Luther King Middle School and it's made its way as many people from different camps were there to protest. Some of the cruelty that happened with Marcus David Peters. Some asking for better schools and more state funding. Some protesting the Coliseum that threatens the investment into schools. As we rounded the corner of the march, but also as a society, some questioned whether the Stony administration was willing to build the will to construct not just coliseums, 
but also a more equitable future. To invest in schools, more so than coliseums, or at least do it in a more equitable manner. As the protest made it to the gates of power, the many reasons and reasons for protesting converged. Into one point, where the man of the hour and school administrators were put to the test. Now this is a test that is not just unique to today. If you remember the girl through the trees here, we'll talk more about her now. This is Barbara Johns. Barbara Johns protested and marched and demanded equal funding for her school way before Brown versus Board of Education. But she didn't go alone. She had the friends that you see to the right, Oliver Hill and Spotwood Robinson. These legal minds joined the fight and won cases protesting a lack of equal funding during the times of segregated schools. They joined their streams with someone you might have heard of, a humble lawyer by the name of Thurgood Marshall. Barbara John's protest made it all the way to the Supreme Court in one of the cases of the Brown versus Board of Education. And the rest is history. Or is it just history? We heard also this day from another young woman, a young student, demanding an equal education. Today, I am here. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Thank you, sorry. You got it. Thank you. <laughs> an ambassador of the National Honor Society, and I hold the title of Miss Armstrong 2018. I'm here today not only to represent myself or my school, but I'm here to also represent all of my peers of RPS. Because of the lack of funding in our schools, my peers and I have a difficult time living up to the goals that we set aside to be successful all because of the minimum equipment and lack of assistance towards our school. All my life I've been hearing, you are the future. Stand up for what you believe in. Give it your best. However, in order for me to hold up my end of the bargain, you have to hold up yours. Start funding your more up-to-date technology and higher qualities of RPS schools so that my fellow peers following behind me can have a better school experience. All students deserve to have an eventful and rewarding experience. Our schools are supposed to re represent hope. So I today, representing all of my RPS peers, we all demand that Virginia start funding in our schools so that every student, not just one, yes. every student oh. can reach our full potential. Right across the street from these riveting speeches making an appeal to the state of Virginia to 
provide equal funding to the less fortunate, right across the street is the United States of Appeals. Now, in keeping track with the nativity narrative that talked about three kings that presented treasures, the United States Courts of Appeals uh, is actually surrounded by three kings of a different currency, shall we say. Three banks, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and SunTrust. The teacher that speaks next will be talking about his feel on how the influence of money is actually getting in the way of the vulnerable. Here's the teacher of the year of Virginia. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Rodney Robinson and I'm the 2019 Virginia Teacher of the Year and I'm here to say all kids deserve better. On November 13th, the state of Virginia announced that Amazon and the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, would be moving their headquarters to Virginia, an announcement applauded by politicians across the state. But they also promised them $1 billion to help them get here. One week later, students at an RBS high school could not have gym class because of a giant rat in the middle of the gym floor. No student should be forced to learn in these conditions, and I'm here to say our kids deserve better. That billion dollars could pay for more teachers, counselors, wraparound services, and 21st century school buildings that are not infested with roaches, rats, and mold. Our kids deserve better. The state of Virginia has almost another billion dollars of surplus money that they want to use to expand highways in Northern Virginia. We need to use that money to expand the minds of children by providing more art, music program, and trauma-based care. All kids deserve better. The state wants to build high-speed rail where children in the rural areas of Virginia don't even have high-speed internet to compete with other students around the country. Our children deserve better. Virginia is the number one state referring students to law enforcement because the state of Virginia spends 40% less on at-risk students than other states in the country. Law enforcement is being used to solve problems with kids these counselors, psychologists, and social workers to help them. Our kids deserve better. I see the results of this every day because I teach in the juvenile detention facility. I have seen firsthand the results of underfunded and understaffed schools. I have a student who committed a gun crime by after experiencing the trauma of watching a close friend die in his arms. When I asked him why he didn't respond to gun violence to a comment someone made at school, he told me I was angry and I needed somebody to talk to. That is not the student's fault that he's in jail. That is the fault of the state for not providing enough support and mental health services so that kid can receive at a fully funded school. Our kids deserve better. And right now, I want every politician to hear me because I'm issuing a warning that if we do not get better and more funding for our schools, we will remember this come election day, November 5th, 2019. We will boot you out of office because our kids deserve Up next, we hear from the man himself, the mayor. 
Now what's important to know is that uh, on the ballot last year was a decision that said the mayor had to propose a city-funded way, not a state, but a city-funded way to fund Richmond Public Schools by December 31st or to say that it can't be done. So here's the speech from LeVar Stoney from the March for More movement and it's important to note that two weeks after this was recorded, LeVar Stoney, the mayor, devoted to investing $800 million of Richmond money to RPS over 20 years. Here it is. Are you cold? No. Are you here? Yes. Did you enjoy the march? Yes. Now is the time. We have waited a very, very long time for the Commonwealth to step up and do their part. I want to begin by thanking the, all the elected officials who joined us today, Superintendent Dr. Castle for joining us well from Henrico County. Our friends from Lynchburg are with us today. Mr. Chairman, thank you so much. The number of teachers and delegates and parents and students who are joining us today. This would not be possible without you. Each and every day, there is a young man or a young woman who wakes up with a dream. And it is our job as elected officials, as teachers, all working together to give them the legs to stand on to achieve that dream. Unfortunately, the Commonwealth of Virginia has cut the legs out underneath many of our children. For the last 10 years, as I said earlier, we have seen one of the most robust recoveries in a generation in terms of the economy. Yet we've seen a disinvestment from the Commonwealth of Virginia. As was stated earlier, a 9% drop in education funding while 5% increase in enrollment across this state. Kids who live in Southwest Virginia, who live in the Valley, who live in Northern Virginia, who live on the Eastern Shore, and who live in urban areas like Richmond have been forgotten. Today, we stand up and say, you will hear us, and you will hear us today, you will hear us tomorrow, you'll hear us in January. Let me tell you this. I would not be standing before you today if it wasn't for public education. I had a father who did not graduate from high school. I had a grandmother, grandmother who didn't graduate from high school. They did the eighth grade. They poured their dreams, their hopes, and their livelihood into me. And as devout taxpayers as well, they believe in getting me the best education possible. For many people, who look like me, black people, folks who have been marginalized in the past and continue to be marginalized today, education is our pathway to the middle class and the We are not doing our job if we are closing those pathways today. My number one fear when I go to bed at night is that a person like me who grew up with parents who didn't have a high school education, won't be able to achieve their dreams in this society. It should be heartbreaking, not just for folks who are here today, 
were the folks who occupied the seats in the General Assembly. And we do have allies. Delegate Van Volkenberg's here with us today. Delegate Bourne is here with us today. Delegate McQuinn's with us today. The allies are there. But guess what? They cannot do it without your support. You have to power this movement. If you want more money for public education, I need to see you each and every day down here in the General Assembly. On the cold January mornings when subcommittees are occurring. I need to see you on January 28th. Marching with teachers from across the Commonwealth of Virginia. I want to see you wearing your red. This is about the future. Do we, do we stand on the sidelines idly while the future passes many of our children behind? Or do we, do we stand lockstep together, focused on the General Assembly for more money for education? I think you all know what the answer is. The answer is yes. So if you are tired, like I'm tired, if you're tired of the shortchanging, the disrespect to the teachers, those who inspire our children each and every day, I need you here. Not just today, but in January and in February. If you are tired to the disrespect to the bus drivers and the custodians like my father, who come to work every day, not just to make a livable wage, but to inspire the next generation, I need you with us. If you are tired of buildings falling down, crumbling right before our eyes, I need you with us today and tomorrow. This is not just about people coming together to make some statements. This is about demanding more for better schools and for stronger children. Can we do that? Can we make that happen? Can we do it today? Can we do it tomorrow? Can we do it in January? Can we do it in February? Will they hear us? I can hear you. I can hear you. Let's get it done. Thank you. After the mayor's speech, I stuck around, you know, as journalists do to see how other people were feeling about the day. It's important to know that the speech was made while General Assembly was not in session and the governor wasn't there. There was a lot of skepticism and questions asked. And for those who wondered what the mayor meant when he said see you in January, I got a chance to catch up with the organizers of the Red for Ed March happening on January 28th. Here it is. It's a result of Mayor Stoney wanting to put pressure on the state, right? And that process has been going on as long as I've been alive, right? If the city says, we don't have enough money for schools, the state's got to give us more. state says, well, that money's got to come from somewhere else, and that money's got to come from other schools that we've got to defund, right? So it's been back and forth. Mayor Stoney didn't want it just to get behind the Red for Ed March. We have to have something to put pressure just on the state, right? 
Uh, so meanwhile, we've got the Coliseum project. No one wants to talk about gentrification. No one wants to talk about the rent going up all over the place. No one wants to talk about the actual cost of the people that live in those communities, right? That we want to talk about like, oh, this money's going to come back to us, right? It, it always trickles down, right? Is the idea. Uh, I'm still waiting for it to trickle down. Uh, I ain't seen it trickle down. And uh, so we're hoping to, to make it clear we have a lot of signs about the Dominion tax cuts that are part of this project too that no one wants to talk about either. We got McEachin got up there and spoke. His number two donors are Dominion Energy and North of Drummond, right? We, we think he gives a crap about that. No, like these projects, they also have to have a cut for their backers too. So that needs to be in the conversation if we want to talk about actually getting money. We know where the money is, they just don't want to give it to us. Dominion and Amazon don't need our investment money. Our schools need the investment money. So I know, it's like a marketing work, but who's going to plan it? I know that uh, a lot of times that um, we've gotten this far throughout the process without getting like, a, community, a community benefits. So okay. I'm into things like that as well. So like, what are your thoughts on that? On how projects like the Diamond or the Redskins facility and all these things that kind of set up almost like corporate colonies here that the community is almost brought it at the tail end and they're throwing like jobs but they don't want to support living wage. And what jobs are they thrown, right? It's like the Amazon HQ, right? That's going to bring such and such jobs to the state. The high paying jobs, they're busing people in from all over the country. That's not bringing jobs to Nova. The Coliseum, the jobs that it's going to bring are low paying part time jobs, right? Like stuff where we're still fighting for it. Meanwhile, the rent keeps going up. We're not putting the community first anywhere, right? Like that's that's the problem from the jump. Thank you. So how can people get involved that are going to rally around your cause and what things that we can do? Red for Ed March. Red for Ed March. January 28th. So this is built on the, the larger movement uh, from organizations like we saw, especially in West Virginia, but we've seen teacher strikes all over the country kind of building off of this momentum. In states that are traditionally hostile to labor, no less. Yes. Uh, states without many labor rights, God knows Virginia, uh, is not friendly to labor in the slightest. Uh, so it's an obstacle that's got to be overcome. So building into that movement is massively important. Right. No, that's very important. Thank you all for that. Um, yeah, thank you all for the work that y'all are doing. January 28th, Red for Red. Okay, thanks. As we reflect on the habits of empire and the times of Jesus and Herod, who often put power and profit over people, we stand in a theological moment. When met by the cries of the vulnerable to invest in a future that equips them, will we say no room in the end? Or will we resist the historic habit of empire and listen to the children, children like Barbara Johns? Have we learned from that history or are we still trapped in habits of empire? This has been a difference in resistance, investment, as resistance. And so, there you have it, investment as resistance. And so, continuing this theme that we're talking about, about just because something is current doesn't mean, <laughs> doesn't mean that it's new, right? Uh, and so I think it was very powerful um, to kind of end that last segment where it talks about where here we're in a space again 
just as Barbara Johns, uh, demanding more, talking about uh, uh, a lack of equality. Um, and while she was met with massive resistance, uh, let's make sure that we're not met with massive investment in things that would cripple uh, or, or, or make it harder to invest in the places that we uh, need to be into. Uh, and this, this cry for, this cry for uh, investment in the vulnerable that's sometimes met with, um, that sometimes is met with denial or, or, or sometimes you're met with violence, right? You talk about the history of, of what has happened when uh, people like uh, the Magi in the historical account have, have, have used their own resources and, 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 and called to take our resources from just the empire and, and bringing them to the vulnerable. That is what the Magi did. <laughs> That's what the Magi did in the in, in the uh, uh, nativity uh, story, but this is this is something that that wasn't just no this this and this is a, a something that even happened during um, during times within the Roman Empire. And so when we talk about it, uh, and this is way before Jesus. And I remember Jesus was born. Some say around six BC, uh, four BC, the latest. So there there were these actually these people called the Gracchi brothers, uh, Tiberius and Gaius, uh, not the uh, obviously not the Caesars, Tiberius, uh, uh, um, since he was um, uh, right around uh, the midlife of Jesus is when he comes in after Augustus. But Ti uh, uh, Tiberius and Gaius, um, and around 132 BC, uh, and this, the reason I have this conversation is because the, the empire isn't just about the Roman Empire, but it also talks about people who have profit and access. And so one of the uh, main uh, fights uh, and disenfranchisement that was happening of, of poor people during the times of Tiberius and Gaius is that uh, there, a lot of aristocratic people and the rich people would kind of buy up the uh, the land and so and then they would kind of push the peasants off of the land and so and sometimes even uh, veterans and soldiers that were not able to kind of uh, get land and so it was this very much this land grab where people who were rich just kind of could grab it up and keep out who they wanted and, and that was another form of empire and so we talk about the political form of empire it's also an economic um, uh, form of empire that can happen and that's what some of the people were kind of protesting at the March for More and saying that um, uh, let's not forget about economic empire that can happen uh, while we're just talking about political empire that can happen and that both of those conversations need to be happening um, and so in 132 BC to T Tiberius and Gaius uh, they were they were they were tribunes and so they attempted to pass land reform legislation that would redistribute the major um, aristocratic land holding among the actually the urban poor uh, and veterans in, in addition to other reform measures to kind of make a more equitable process because people were actually on um, were just these these poor people and these veterans were just surviving off of handouts because they they, they just was no no way for them to have land and to kind of really just contribute into a, a land that kind of made for that. And so they actually were making, um, they actually uh, had some achievements and some early success with this, but, but guess what happened? Both were assassinated by enemies of the reform. And so when we talk about empire, the first half we kind of talked about uh, political empire. Uh, secondly, we have to talk about 
economic empire, right? Um, uh, uh, who gets invested in versus who gets no room in the end. And it's in this dilapidated uh, type of uh, uh, thing there was. And, and to understand uh, just, just how much Jesus was put at risk by that because uh, in this book for uh, first Christmas uh, it talks about that the that the uh, the mortality rate of infants around the time of Jesus's death and in the town that he was from and the, the where the people that he lived under such oppression that it was up was as high as eighty percent so so just coming into that oppressive environment eighty percent chance right uh, uh, of losing that child and then to be told there's no room to put in even more dilapidated places even increase that even more so even the the, the more miraculous not just the conception but actually that he was born on into those type of circumstances would have been a miracle itself in that day uh and so when we talk about the economic things we talk about again just because it's current doesn't mean that it's that it's new and we see that when people make this request for uh, uh, moving against the economic empire, right? Uh, and one of my heroes here that I have here, uh, Brother Whitney Young, um, he called for his his civil rights thing was actually about economic ways of empowering people so that people could 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 um, thrive and flourish, right? Within what this. I guess economic empire. So it's calling for investment, right? Uh, investment as resistance. Uh, that's really the life of Whitney Young, and it's my belief that I think um, this also helped, uh, and, and also this came with Dr. King uh, uh, living uh, um, in, in 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 slums and ghettos, and actually actually entering that space and understanding. Um, that not only was there a need for um, civil rights, but also investment and in, 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 in equity. Um, you see here in his book, To Be Equal, uh, Whitney Young, uh, after seeing how uh, the U.S. rebuilt Europe after the World Wars and, and would, they had something called a Marshall Plan that would actually help them build up, rebuild their infrastructure, infrastructure and things that were bombed and things like that so that they could, they could come back and be able to have that investment and be able to thrive. When Young says, well, dag on it, man, we need a domestic Marshall Plan, right? We need, we need people that are willing to invest in us here and, and, and to, to, to rebuild um, just the, the ravages that people are living under economically because of slavery and racism and Jim Crow and all these other types of things. So in this book, uh, To Be Equal, um, uh, it, it actually talks about what, what he thought would be the type of investment that would be needed um, to, to change the economic oppression of people. Uh, as he progresses through time, he's actually, um, uh, uh, though he wasn't directly on the commission, he was one of the advising voices for the Kerner Commission, which we talked about in season in in season one, I believe the episode that talks about whose past matters that talks about how uh, Lyndon B. Johnson uh, put together the Kerner Commission and after the Detroit riots and wanted to say what was the cause of this and and the people on the commission said it was, it's it's a lack of investment. Pretty much historically, he had told this side of town that there's no room in the end and we've put them into dilapidated circumstances and they have chosen uh as howard thurman says the 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 
alternative of resistance through the use of violence. And that is pretty much because of um, uh, not just the political decisions we made, but the economic empire of racism uh, has put them in a place where they, they, they're feeling that they're at wit's end, right? Uh, and this happened in 60, uh, and, and so the, these results come out, uh, and Glenda B. Johnson pretty much says, look, man, I'm, uh, we've got this war that's going on, and uh, some of these civil rights people are hawking out of billions by war, and I don't really have, you know, I didn't know it was going to be all that. I'm really, and it's just kind of, it just kind of dies, kind of goes flat. Um, and this is, and this is also the year within Dr. King, when we talk about the 67-68 transition uh, that talks about not just civil rights but also economic investment, or as John Hope Bryant says, from civil rights to silver rights, right? Uh, and the economic investment and even the Freedmen's Bank that Frederick Douglass tried to do back in the day during Reconstruction and things like that. Um, how uh, he says, Dr. King says, we're going to go to Washington and we're going to get our check. He says this in, I believe, February, maybe February or March uh, in 1968. And then by April, he is assassinated. So here, as we see this, as we talk about historically uh, uh, with, with uh, Tiberius and Gaius making this and then being assassinated, Dr. King talking about this and being assassinated, Whitney Young writes another book called Beyond Racism and talks about what's what's required um, to, to, to go beyond racism and the type of investments that, that are needed and, and uh, what it would mean to build an open society. And, and, and again, the investment, the economic investment. And he starts off the book talking about Lyndon B. Johnson's failure to do something substantial about the Kerner Commission. Um, because that was, again, hey, I got a war, I got whatever, no room in the end, right? Uh, when we talk about reflections, and so um, the uh, Poverty and Race Research Action Council, they actually, uh, in volume 27, uh, they actually did a 50-year follow-up with the Kerner Commission, because 2018 was the 50-year follow-up of this, of this again, there's no room in the end, no way of investment. Uh, we, we, you know, we don't, we don't have the money within our economic empire to do these things, which is typically the, when you talk about living wage, when you talk about, uh, uh, which Dr. King kind of talked about in his book, in his last book, Where to Go From Here, Chaos Community, we talk about all these types of things for the people that are oppressed, and healthcare, and all these other types of things. Oh, we don't have money for that. We don't have money for that. But when it comes to uh, wars and all these other types of things or building a wall, right, suddenly all this money is available. But when it's time for investing in the vulnerable, investing in the poor, then we get no room in the end. We see that habit of empire uh, coming up again. Uh, and so uh, Sherilyn Eiffel, I, I found the things that she says um, uh, that how racism is directly rooted to the uh, economic uh, uh, things to say even 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 to this day um, she says uh, with this comes my fear that we've come to accept this physical landscape as inevitable instead of recognizing that the removal of racism and segregation is manifestations in our cities towns and suburbs 
was among the massive projects called for the civil rights efforts of the 1950s and 1960s. <clears throat> so she's, and then she says, uprooting racism from our physical landscapes is the project that should have been undertaken with the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1968. So she's talking about racism that happens in land use and again, how the economic empire uh, plays out still to this present day. She says, what's the project called for in many ways in the recommendations of the Kerner Commission report? And I think we know now that we have failed in this project. Thus the policies and decisions that we make are allowed today. Any decision that affects housing, zoning, development, or infrastructure, unless they are explicitly and deliberately focused in some measure on ameliorating, responding to, or providing reparation for pre-existing discrimination in the physical landscape. Those policies and decisions are either perpetuating pre-existing manifestations of discrimination or contributing to new dimensions of a discriminatory landscape. Um, and she talks about we miss uh, opportunities to do the kind of relentless upending and interruption of segregation and racism in our physical landscape that is required if we are get to a place not only of integration, right, but of equity, reparation, and fairness. Uh, and so here she's talking about, and we're talking about, we're talking about reparations, reparations, and, and making repairs for things, but that's all has to do with how the economic empire. Um, works in America and uh, and in the world. And so this no room in the end response, this is something that <laughs> throughout society we have we have we have seen. Um, it's a pattern that continues. It's a pattern that continues not only uh, on the global and national scale, but as we're kind of shrinking down and trying to be more uh, focused in what we're asking for. Even when we talk about the city of Richmond and when we talk about the fact that things like community benefit agreements uh, aren't a fundamental part of what we do in development in our city uh, and, and, and planning uh, in light of the history of racism in our city and being the capital of the Confederacy and then the, 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 the lab that has exported to the world things such as white supremacy and, 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 and uh, a lot of these other things that have economic consequences. The fact that we do not upfront talk about that um, is, is, is basically a no, like a no room in the end situation. Uh, and so she talks about ways that we can disrupt the economic empire, right? When we talk about land use and things like this, especially when we're talking about uh, the different projects that are trying to come to Richmond and the history of Navy Hill being a historically black uh, neighborhood where historically it was a black neighborhood and when I-95 came through they drove it through and cleared out all of these housing the economic realities of what that still means and even what that means in Jackson Ward and things like that as well um, where the only uh, black remnant of, 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 of that neighborhood is a, is a church right that didn't get bulldozed, right? Uh, so what happens when, you know, you regard uh, the house of God, but not the image of God, right, as a society? What are the economic implications of that? So she says, for example, if cities, major urban centers or suburban cities had ordinances that required every development project over a certain amount of money to include a detailed plan of how that development would foster or promote racial and social economic integration, then developers 
would have to regularize this as part of their thinking and planning and not view it as a bar to development, right? So again, man, I'm not here to talk about all that economic or reparation, all that, like, that's, that is a habit of empire, right? And so she says, we can do this today. No tax breaks or support should be given to major development projects in your community. Think, imagine that in Richmond. No tax breaks or support should be given to major development projects in your community unless those developers have as a part of their plan, right? Not no room in the end or we can't do that. But no, no, this is going to be a part of their plan. Identified how they will address, confront, and play a part in dismantling racial and social economic segregation in your town, city, or county. It is key to understand that nearly every decision that affects development or infrastructure has an implication for segregation. Imagine that in this conversation with what's going to happen with Dominion and Navy Hill and, and what's going to happen with uh, all the hotels and all the things that they're bringing in. Imagine if as a city we said no tax breaks or support should be given to major development projects in our community unless those developers have as a part of their plan identified how they will address, confront, and play a part in dismantling racial and social economic segregation in our town, city, and county. Just imagine, right? Freeing up your divine imagination. I think that that is, that is uh, what Howard Thurman is talking about in the ways of uh, more resistance and freeing up the divine imagination to say that no I, I'm not just trying to bargain to keep a status quo but that the status quo can change right uh, that not only can it can we make room in the end but we can construct an end <laughs> and construct a system construct an economic period of invest uh, ways of investment so that hey so that the next hundred years that uh, some of the most vulnerable, who are previously the most vulnerable in our society in a hundred years can be the ones equipped by this economic system to be making the next deal for what this should look like. Uh, and so, uh, when we're reflecting on the, the Christmas narrative, right, now outside of the gift giving and gift cards and run to Macy's and all these other types of things, as we talk about what this actually calls us to and the habits of empire, right? Again, internal, no difference. No, no, there is no difference without subtraction. What habits of empire do we need to subtract from our lives? Are we so to a point that uh, politics has become our religion or whatever tribe we're in that as long as it's doing it, that's, that, must be what, uh, that must be what is approved? Uh, has our religion solely just become winning and more profit and more and more and more and more? Um, uh, are we operating in a space that that says no room in the end when it comes to investing and protecting and 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 uh, advancing the most vulnerable in our society? Those are the questions that I want us to uh, examine, and specifically in our city. Uh, now it's been proposed for $800 million over 20 years, and I know we're also talking about spending uh, um, uh, a billion uh, combined with the private and the, and the public funds, or $1.2 billion now, I think, uh, on, on a coliseum and, and 
on more ways of profit and sure there are things built in to talk about how that could do but at the end that's still an if and that's still an investment that we're in how can we make sure that as Sharon Lyle says built into the plan not a not a oh I'm glad that happened we'll act like that's the plan or we don't have room for that how can being built into the plan uh, being built into a society built into the habits of our lives is the positioning of the wise men uh, in the Matthew account that forsakes the uh, dictates of empire and uses their resources, uh, their strategy to uh, protect and to equip uh, the vulnerable for what they're called to do. Because the crazy thing about what the Magi gave is that they gave things that were tr traditionally used uh, in, in, in burial and so the, the Christ child was destined to die but he was equipped by these people who forsook the empire's dictates to, to equip this child for what they're destined to do in the future and so the question is as a society with our resources do we just do the dictates of are we Herods or we're just about our legacy moves and how can we can make the best out of what we have and do we resist those who are trying to actually build a better society or are we like the magi who say i'm i'm not going to participate i'm not going to contribute my stream to a stream of oppression i'm going to contribute my stream into a into a, a revolution of justice where my resources are used my influence is used to equip the vulnerable to do what god has destined them to do and so, I know some of you are saying, well, man, where was the segment on Do Better Baby? But I want to say, as a society, we need to do better. As a society, it shouldn't be that every time that when, 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 when uh, Whitney Young talks about the domestic martial plan, that it's denied. When the Kerner Commission talks about it, it's denied. When Dr. King talks about it, he's assassinated. With, and with uh, uh, Resurrection City and the Poor People's Campaign, that it's, that it's, that it's, uh, almost ignore them when we're building uh, buildings for as legacy moves and saying oh this this uh, boulevard or this uh, training center or this uh, dominion thing and instead of launching it as something to put on my resume is it something that is putting on the community that is affected by it and if that is not our mode of operations if that is not built into the plan then we all need to do better. This, I believe, is the meditation that we should have around the Nativity story. This has been season two, episode number two, No Room in the End, The Christ Child and the Habits of Empire. I'm your host, Charlie Ray. Uh, if you haven't um, subscribed already, go ahead and subscribe. Um, and also, um, I'm also going to throw up um, and link to uh, some great work by some sisters named RBA Dirt. They have uh, they hosted a community discussion that I have the honor of filming and helping out with. That kind of really breaks down uh, the history of this Navy Hill uh, moment that we're in. Uh, it kind of talks about what the plans are, kind of what the concerns from the community are. If you want to talk about uh, people that are very much in touch with. Uh, some of the vulnerable in society. Uh, I want you all to watch it and become more informed about it and see 
what habits of empire you see in it and uh, and, uh, it, and that we can all pray and work together for uh, in America and for Richmond where if the Christ child were to come today he would be equipped to do what he is destined to do. My name is Charlie Ray. I love you. I love you. That's why I'm here. Peace.